This is episode 178 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Muscle Stem Cell Quiescence with Dr. Tom Chung. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. And if listening to this podcast isn't enough, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, where we do our best to update you on all the latest news in the stem cell research field as it's happening in real time. Today, we have Dr. Tom Chung from the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on muscle stem cell quiescence. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, if you haven't heard by now, we'd like to introduce you to Muscle Cell News, a free weekly newsletter provided by the Stem Cell Science News Program. Muscle Cell News, as you might expect, summarizes all of the latest research news jobs and events in muscle cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Monday. So save time and keep current with Muscle Cell News. You can subscribe for free at www.musclecellnews.com. We're going to shift away from the muscle for, for the first story, and we're going to recap a very recent paper coming out of the lab of a recent guest of ours, Sergio Pasca, over at Stanford. Title of this paper is Neuronal Defects in a Human Cellular Model of 22Q11.2 Deletion Syndrome. This is a paper that just came out in Nature Medicine. First author is, there's a few first authors, actually. The first author uh, here is an old friend of mine, Tomas Khan from Stanford, as well as Omer Reva and Aaron Gordon, I believe, from down at UCLA. And again, this is coming from Sergio Pasca's lab. It's a pretty uh, collaborative effort from different folks at Stanford and across the West Coast. So let's uh, jump right into it. So there's this uh, 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder uh, that's usually caused by the deletion of a piece of DNA at the location Q11.2 on chromosome 22, okay? And people with this particular deletion syndrome can have a variety of different abnormalities, including heart abnormalities, uh, defects in immune functioning, defects in palate development, skeletal differences, developmental delays, and so on. But the real focus of this particular deletion, it's kind of real claim to fame, is the uh, the fact that it actually confers an increased risk for different neuropsychiatric disorders, um, including autism spectrum disorder, and also an up to 30-fold increase in the risk of psychosis and also association with schizophrenia. So this 22Q11.2 deletion is actually the most common genetic copy number variant that's found in people with uh, autism spectrum disorder, and up to a quarter of people with this syndrome are ultimately going to develop schizophrenia. So this is actually the biggest study of its type in terms of the number of patients who donated cells to actually make IPSCs. So this was an IPS disease model. It was 15 individuals who had 22Q11 and then 15 control individuals, just a massive, massive effort to generate these lines. So actually to investigate what's going on in the mechanism of the uh, this particular deletion, 
the Pasca lab generated, as I mentioned, IPSCs and then differentiated them into brain organoids. You know, we talked about these cortical organoids that the Pasca lab is working on. I don't believe they use their assembloids in this particular paper, but they use their uh, cortical organoids here. And so they're able to analyze the gene expression in the organoids across 100 days of their development, and they found changes in the expression of different genes linked to the neuronal excitability in the organoids that are actually created from, uh, from these people. So they took a closer look at different signaling pathways, and they actually found that the 22Q11 cells had defects in the resting memory potential, in calcium handling, uh, and so on. Uh, they, in particular, they found that there's a gene in the 22Q11 deletion area, DGCR8, um, that could be associated with some of the neuronal abnormalities uh, for the particular syndrome. And it's actually been demonstrated in mouse models and rodent models uh, that there is a link between this particular deleted gene and the onset of the neuronal abnormalities. So they did some CRISPR and they identified that a heterozygous loss of the gene is actually sufficient to induce some of the changes in excitability and action potential that I was talking about in their 22Q11 neurons. And you can actually rescue this uh, deletion phenotype by overexpressing DGCR8 with, I believe, a lenti vector. And that led to a restoration of normal cellular functioning. And the, the last little part of this paper that was pretty wild, we were talking about it a little bit before the show, was treating these 22Q11 deletion syndrome organoids and neurons with antipsychotic drugs, okay? So they actually tried three different antipsychotic drugs, raclopride, sulpiride, or xanapride, and actually they're able to restore some of the defects uh, rescue some of the defects in the resting member to the potential of the neurons, the 22Q11 neurons, within minutes of administering the drug. So it's a it's a neat disease model. You know, we talk about IPS disease models a lot on this show. But the unique angle about this particular model, well, one, you're using a really next generation technology in these cortical organoids coming from the Pasca lab. But two, you're trying to model a neuropsychiatric disorder in a dish. All right. I, I think this is it's tricky, right? It's tricky because this is a disorder that's not well defined. Psychosis isn't always well defined. It's not black and white, right? There's a spectrum on these particular disorders. So you're trying to replicate a neuropsychiatric disorders in a cell in a dish. Okay, you can identify some of the mechanisms that might be driving that disorder, like what they did here with the defects and the resting memory potential and the calcium handling and so on. But to completely replicate that phenotype in a dish, it's it's tough. And I'm sure Sergio gets this question a lot. How accurate is this particular disease model to model a you know, a complex disorder that's not really that well defined. It's um, it's a unique system, but I think there are a lot of questions that Sergio is definitely getting with this particular model. Yes, I'm sure he is. And there's a lot more questions raised from this uh, that I think are actually interesting and I'm not going to answer for Serge, but I, I would say not in his defense. I don't think he needs to defend himself. This is a great story. Um, but I would say that the key here it's, it's really up to the editors, I would say, to decide whether this meets the scope. I think the key here is that they found a phenotype. They took those 15 uh, individuals and created a robust study that was able to distill this genotype down mm -hmm. to a phenotype that they could measure 
and then they started telling their story. Then they reduced it down to this gene. Then they showed that you could rescue, and it was sufficient to rescue. You know, so I think that they've done their job, and it's up to the editors to say whether this belongs in nature medicine or somewhere else. But what I thought that was really interesting also from this is that um, the real key, the, the era we're living in, is that we had a whole wave of the, the you know, looking at the disease modeling with these mm -hmm. monogenic diseases, um, our single foci diseases like this. Uh, and, and then it seems like we ran out of diseases, right? And all the big yeah. studies came out. And now we have a whole new opportunity, a whole new raft based on the idea that that was, those, all those that were synthesized from 2D. And now we have the organoids so we can recapitulate the more physiological systems. But here in this case, it's, it's there in the abstract um, that the, the defects in neuronal activity were present in the 2D-derived cortical neurons mm -hmm. as well. So I would ask Serge about that. Like, did we need organoids for this? And of course, organoids help. But um, was it just the fact that no one was able to do the brute force uh, IPS derivation and whatnot before now to look at this question? Or uh, did the organoids really give another dimension, literally, that allowed them to elucidate this uh, this phenotype? Yeah, I think we would have definitely a lot of questions for Sergio if we uh, had this paper come out, you know, before he joined us on the podcast. But you're right. I mean, this is a disease model, and over the course of time, these disease model papers have in general been lower in their overall impact like we talked about uh one of the, some of the initial papers for ips disease modeling like modeling a long qt syndrome in a dish and that was you know you make one ips line you show a phenotype in a dish and that gets you a very high profile paper i think this the, the just the scope of work the amount of work that the folks here did uh, tells you how much you actually have to do these days to get into a high-profile uh, journal if you're doing an IPS disease model. So again, 15 lines, 15 lines, 30 total lines, uh, 2D models, three-dimensional models, CRISPR, lentivirus, drug rescue, everything. And that's what you know took to what it took to get into nature medicine. But hey, props to their persistence. Yes. And then on the other hand, you have the COVID stories. I mean, you've been here, Arun. <laughs> if it's a COVID story, it's just a race. And uh, yep. I mean, it's important. I'm not trying to minimize this, but maybe you can get away with a little bit less uh, elbow mm -hmm. grease. Um, nevertheless, this is a COVID story that's a, a bit old now at this point by the time this airs, but I think it's important. It's a nice illustration of how you can use IPS and organoids to uh, tackle these really salient and immediate questions. This is a story from Guali Ming at UPenn. Um, although we were talking before the show how we talked uh, with Madeline Lancaster when she was on the show about how she did a similar thing. And I'm betting she's uh, ruining the publication of this story, which may have been a bit of a scoop for her. Anyway, it's about COVID. You know, we talk about the major risk. Everyone's on event, right? That's what we think. But uh, it's emerging that there's also these neurological complications. Um, stroke, uh, altered mental status, encephalitis, encephalopathy, dizziness, headache. Um, also, there's neuropsychiatric ailments that I hadn't heard about this. I don't know you, about you, Aron, but new onset psychosis, uh, neurocognitive syndrome and, and, syndrome and uh, affective disorders, all been reported in a significant number of patients. Also, you found the viral RNA in the brain and in the cerebrospinal fluid so you know that it's like peripheral there, or, or if not central, but um, it's unclear whether the symptoms are a, a consequence of direct 
neural infection or a sequelae of like a systemic um, conditions, right? Uh, and there's a limited availability of brain tissue, of course, with patients that have COVID and neurological symptoms. So, you know, these people are walking around talking about it, but we can't get to their brains, obviously, uh, and we can't study the ongoing pathogenesis because it's in their brain. Also, cell lines can't recapitulate normal human physiology. We know that. Cell lines also have like tumor-associated mutations a lot of time. All this leading to the obvious point here. We got to use organoids or iPS-derived cells, you know, something that's more native. Um, and organoids were really important for studying Vika, Zika, if you remember. Uh, they uh, were really essential in solidifying the link between the Zika virus infection um, and the neural progenitor. showed that they were actually the vector there. Uh, and also, iPS and organoids have recently been used to great effect with COVID. We've talked about all of them pretty much in the intestine, the lung, kidney, liver, pancreas, vasculature, brain, all these systems have been uh, exploited in the IPS system. Uh, and that leads us to this. Uh, this is a, a, a story by, as I said, Guali Ming. Um, and it was based on the observation that there's, in a lot of groups have reported that there's very sparse infection of actually neural cells, neurons and astrocytes. Um, and when uh, they... Uh, or re uh, repeated these experiments, they showed that in their organoids, they uh, found uh, an exception to that, that there was a real enrichment of virus infection in these regions that were identified as choroid plexus epithelial cells. This is where I mentioned Madeline Lancaster. Remember, she made choroid plexus sacs that actually made cerebral spinal fluid. It was awesome. Um, when they found that here, they switched gears and went to optimize protocol for generating cord plexus. They probably got that from Madeline Lancaster's bioarchive story. I don't know, just speculating. Um, and then they actually were enriching for these cord plexus organoids and showed that the SARS-CoV-2 uh, was very productive. Um, and it was able to affect the cells. There was increased cell death and transcriptional dysregulation, suggestive of like inflammatory response and other cellular deficits. So they show that these cells could get infected well, and then they show that they were they got all screwed up. Um, and of course, I think this really solidifies this observation of the neurological symptoms and shows that uh, the cord plexus was probably the vector for entry there. Yeah, when you sent me this paper, I thought it, it was going to be another paper from Madeline Lancaster, you know, because she had that really high profile science paper with the cord plexus brain organoids with the little sacks of cerebral spinal fluid that you just want to pop with the needle. Remember that? Yeah, I thought it was going to be a paper from her. And she does have a paper on bioarchive actually on this exact topic um, using SARS-CoV-2 and infecting her cord plexus organoids. But hey, it's a really hot field, as you mentioned. And there's multiple people working on every single topic you can think of with coronavirus. Trust me, I know, you know, we published something on you using IPS cardiomyocytes to model cardiac infection with the coronavirus. And, you know, now there are actually five or six other papers using IPS cardiomyocytes to model, you know, COVID-19 and uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. So it's a saturated field. It's a hot field, but, you know, it's, we learn something new about the virus every single day. And I think um, really the more information we get is, is good because then 
you know, we we still have we still have to tease apart the mechanisms of how this virus, you know, is actually functioning. And the last thing I'm going to mention, did you know that I actually did a little something with IPS derived cortical neurons myself in the lab over here? I'm not just a heart guy, you know, I, I dabble, I dabble in brain stuff, too. I just so happen to be the heart guy in the brain lab here in the Svensson lab at Cedar sinai But I actually, you know, threw some, you know, coronavirus, or I didn't throw the coronavirus, we threw the coronavirus on some iPS-derived cortical neurons and actually showed the same phenotype that they're, they're showing here in this paper, that cortical neurons are minimally infected by the coronavirus. And really it's this choroid plexus that uh, seems like it's more susceptible to infection. Yes. Uh... I'm sad for Madeline, but I, I doubt she's like, you know, wallowing. Um, if yeah. you look deep into this story, it's pretty basic. It was a race. They have bulk RNA-seq, you know, they have a kind of glancing blow at kind of cellular deficit mechanism there. But it, knowing Madeline, I'm sure she's deep into using the more cutting edge, looking at a higher resolution analysis and probably, you know, looking at the back end of it. How do we mitigate the... Uh, the ability of, of the virus to enter these cells. So Madeline, we'll have you on for your rebuttal there. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to talk to her about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm pretty sure, you know, she's doing just fine. She's got plenty of pretty high profile papers that have come out this year. I mean, it always does sting when you inevitably do get to get scooped, but um, she's got plenty of good stuff still in the works. So we're going to shift gears away from stem cell biology, actually entirely for a moment here and talk about a heart paper. Yes, a heart paper. I'm sorry. I'm a broken record. I know, but I think this is really important. This is a resource that just came out titled cells of the adult human heart, period. That's it. That's <laughs> the name of the paper. It's a nature paper. And really, this is going to be, I think, the definitive single cell resource for cardiac muscle biology. Um, that's why I wanted to, to highlight it. It's single cell sequencing of 500,000 plus cells of multiple adult human hearts. So I believe 14 in total. And this was a hugely collaborative effort between folks that um, that I'm pretty familiar with up in Boston at the Harvard Medical School, as well as folks in the UK and also a team in Germany. So to gain actually better insight into the composition of the healthy, important healthy adult human heart, these folks generated hundreds of thousands of cells from half a dozen heart regions, individual regions of the heart. And they presented this particular study in, in nature. So half a million cells, it's a collaborative effort between uh, all these institutions. And so what did they ultimately find? They're able to show that there's a high level of heterogeneity in cardiomyocytes. So not all cardiomyocytes are the same. So in ventricular myocytes, which are en enriched for gene transcripts that encode the sarcomeric proteins and different transcription factors, they actually identified five different distinct populations. One of them, this VCM1, makes up 60% of the left ventricle, but only about 37% of right ventricle. So even so-called ventricular myocytes have differences between the left and the right ventricle. Okay, so that's kind of cool. They also showed similarly that there are actually five different atrial cardiomyocyte populations. This is a little scary, okay? We talk about in IPS disease modeling, we're making ventricular cardiomyocytes, we're making atrial myocytes. It's 
but it's way more complicated than that, according to the single cell paper. Even within the atrial population, there are a bunch of different other subpopulations. And also, there's 17 different subpopulations of endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells, parasites, mesenthelial cells, and all in all, more than 60 different cell states that are actually found across the 11 cell types that they investigated in the human heart. And finally, kind of bringing it back to the the COVID-related stuff, because everything has to have a COVID angle these days, right? To actually illustrate how this cardiac cell atlas could be applied, they examined where in the heart the SARS-CoV-2 uh, coronavirus receptor, ACE2, you know, this famous ACE2 receptor is expressed. And they actually found it most highly expressed in the parasites as well as the fibroblasts, and actually relatively lowly expressed in the cardiomyocytes, although the ACE2 expression was actually a little bit higher in the ventricular myocytes than in the atrial myocytes. All right, so it's not it's not a single cell paper, but it is a tour de force. It is a tremendous piece of, of literature. It is a tremendous resource. You can actually access their atlas, this heart cell atlas. It's freely accessible at heartcellatlas.org. I actually got it pulled up in my browser tab here. It's really cool stuff. I'll probably take a look at it later today after this podcast. Uh, so check it out. It's, I think it's going to be the benchmark and the gold standard for anything heart single cell related, probably for, for years to come. Half a million cells. Wow. What a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, it's a resource. Uh, and you started with the title. I mean, I, when I, I like to look at the AOP there in nature and I see the title there, I'm like, okay, that's a review. And then I was like, oh, no, it's just like a middle finger type <laughs> title, which is like, boom, that's like a boom title. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's deserved, I think, in terms of the, uh, the effort and the resources that were committed to it. But I, I, part of it aggravates me. It's, the, it's obviously mm-hmm. the single cell fatigue and all that stuff. And all these are your people over there. No disrespect. But mm-hmm. um, I think that and I'm sure I don't I'm not sure, but I bet that the, the authors would be conservative in their claims here. But when you hear like a story like this comes out, it's like, oh, yeah, you thought we were just atri- atrium and ventricle. It turns out there's seven of those and six of these and 18 of these and 60 plus of that. Like, is it is it are they would they say now there's there are because it's like the title cells of the human art. Would they say mm. there are 64 cells in the types of cells in the human art <laughs> or is like the reality like we're still grappling and learning every day that it's more complex and it's almost semantic all the cells that we identify are kind of on a spectrum you know like yeah. the single cell seek shows you that like there's yeah. there's cells there's overlap but it almost makes you realize as i've said many times in the show that these cells are like snowflakes and and the the idea that we're we're correctly identifying all the cells, I think, is is a bit far-fetched. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And something else to consider here is the age range from which these samples were actually obtained. They're 14 people ages 40 to 70, right? And so you're completely missing that juvenile population, that young adult population. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the heart changes dramatically over the course of age. And how, so how do you define a control individual, right? Mm-hmm. These are samples from so-called healthy controls. But what is the universal healthy control? I've also always kind of wondered that, right? 
Yeah, but you got to start somewhere and I'll start at half a million. As you said, this will be the benchmark. This will be the resource that everyone compares to. And it's publicly available. You've got it on Mm -hmm. probably open in six or seven tabs, just in case one of them closes. You want to have some backup, don't you, everyone? Just three tabs. Just three for now. (laughs) Well, if you get to talk about the heart, then I get to talk about the blood. All right? So just shut up with your heart for a second while I talk about not exactly blood, stem cells, but uh, pathology here. We're talking about Fanconi anemia, which is a DNA repair disorder that some of you may know about. Um, It's the most frequently inherited bone marrow failure syndrome. Uh, And also there's a strong predisposition, predisposition, sorry, in these patients toward uh, myelodysplastic syndrome and uh, AML, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and the reason why the fact patients develop bone marrow failure is because their hematopoietic stem progenitor cell pool becomes exhausted. Uh, the, hemat- the HSPCs, I'll just cut that short, they hyperactivate um, also in addition to becoming like superactivated, they also have this phenotype where in response to that they they hyperactivate all the growth suppressive, not all, but major growth suppressive pathways, um, most notably P53 and transforming growth factor beta. So this is known, Um, but really mechanistically how you get these competing influences of cancer as well as exhaustion, which seem maybe seem opposed, uh, is not really well understood. And looking at FANC patients, it's a really great resource that you can just, you know, the blood's great like that. You can take out their primary HSPCs uh, from the bone marrow of these patients and and model them and grow them and look at all the clonal growth and then transplant them into the immunocompromised mice or humanized mice. But it's still a challenge because there's few of these hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, fewer even in the FANC patients, right, because they're exhausted. Um, And... Uh, Also, there's a lot of heterogeneity, like you don't know exactly where these cells are along their differentiation hierarchy, right? So uh, a story from Alan DeAndrea at Dana-Farber was meant to uh, elucidate some of the determinants of specifically here the bone marrow failure. What's the mechanism by which these cells lead ultimately to bone marrow failure? Uh, And in order to do this, of course, they used single cell. Um, And this is the key here. Because of the heterogeneity along the differentiation hierarchy, you can actually capture a snapshot. This is the great power uh, of a single cell, um, that you can capture a snapshot of all the cells and then pick out the ones that are more higher on the hierarchy, um, or place them at least on their hierarchy. Uh, And what they found here is in addition to finding that in these patient HSPCs, what was known is that there's overexpression of P53 and TGF-beta pathway effectors. They also identified, wait for it, high levels of MYC, okay? Mm. MYC, like WINT or mm-hmm. TGF-beta for that matter. It's, it's one of those things where it's been heavily, heavily studied. It's implicated in everything related to growth. Um, but it's important here because of, particularly in the hematopoietic system, it's been linked to... Um, a lot of syndromes. Um, in this case, they showed that there was a coexistence of distinct subpopulations that either had P53 or MYC. So it seemed like there's like kind of two as a binary uh, 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 population there, either or. Um, and when you inhibited MYC, uh, you could reduce the clonogenic potential of the HSPC, so they grew less. Um, but you were able to rescue the, the genotoxic stress 
that you see uh, in these models, in these FANC-A model mice. Um, you're able to rescue that genotoxic stress. Uh, and the conclusions from this is that um, while the MYC, it promotes proliferation, that also leads to increased DNA damage, right? Because fundamentally, the FANC anemia, it's a DNA repair disorder. So amplifying that proliferation leads to a lot more cells slipping through, which can ultimately lead to either just apoptosis exhaustion or uh, these myelodysplastic dysplastic or acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and also, finally, they show that there was also a downregulation of, of cell adhesion genes in these cells, which um, ultimately led to enhanced egress from the quiescent niche there. So in totality, using really just like single-cell seq, um, uh, which is, I don't want to downplay the importance of this story, but using this, this assay and then following up with some functional stuff, we're able to show that there's kind of this dichotomy in these FANC patients whereby MYC may be uh, promoting proliferation, um, but also leading to a lot of genotoxic stress, and that there's two competing influences working towards bone marrow failure in FANC anemia patients, one being the bone marrow failure because of the massive growth suppression and alternatively, you're getting these cells burn out um, downstream of MYC hyperactivation. So a, a nice hematopoietic story. You, you can never hear enough, if you're me, about hematopoietic and the little kernels of knowledge that we can uh, glimpse to try and, you know, figure out how to kill, uh, solve what kills the most people in, in terms of cancers. You know, these cancers of the blood are the major killers. Surprise, surprise, another role for MYC in causing disruption of cellular function via hyperproliferation. I'm not being cynical. I just find it amazing how influential this core set of oncogenes are in causing a variety of different proliferative phenotypes like in and out of cancer, right? For decades, we've known that MYC and P53 have had these roles, but we're still discovering new ways about how they can influence pathogenesis. You know, It actually tells you something about how powerful these genes actually are. Yes, powerful and central, but I mean, I, what may be behind your cynicism there, and I'm, I feel it too. It seems like with some of these stories, it's like there's a, there's a point of the story where it's new and novel, and then they get to Mick, and it's like, okay, then, the then all the rest of the experiments are pretty much like prescribed. It's like the rest of the four figures are going to be your meat and potatoes, Mick with the you know, inhibitors and activators and mTOR and blah, 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 and you know how it's going to end. So yes, maybe not the most exciting, but a very important result. Uh, there's always something more we can learn about Mick. You may even wonder, what does Mick do in skeletal muscle progenitor cells if you work with them? If you work with them, the stem cell technology's human myocult workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish, allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using mouse myocult expansion medium. Learn more about this at www.stemcell.com slash myocult. And now we can talk about skeletal muscle as we were meant to do with Dr. Tom Chung. All right, today on this episode, we have the special delight of having Tom Chung, who is the S.H. Ho Associate Professor of Life Science at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. The Chung Lab investigates the molecular pathways that control muscle, stem cell quiescence, and stem cell-mediated tissue regeneration. Tom, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Well, 
Thank you for the invitation to to speak at this podcast, uh, Dylan and and Arun. (laughs) So, Dr. Chung, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast, and we'll jump right into it. Your lab focuses on the molecular mechanisms of stem cell quiescence and activation, as Dalon mentioned, with a particular focus on adult stem cells. And this June, you actually published a paper in Developmental Cell focusing on a unique mechanism, global intron retention, that muscle stem cells actually use to stay quiescent. So tell us a little bit more about this unique RNA splicing story and just how conserved is this mechanism in other adult stem cells as well. So Arun, thank you for bringing uh, this paper up, and uh, we're very excited uh, to, uh, I mean, finally have this paper published. But before I jump into the the phenomenon of intron retention, I would like to actually talk a little bit about the one of the techniques that we're using in this particular paper, namely uh, a technique that we try to fix the stem cells in situ. Right. So, so I think this is actually the one of the main reasons why we see what we see. Uh, so now, this particular fixation technique is uh, essentially, I mean, very simple. It's a it's a perfusion technique where we perfuse a very very light dose of uh, paracetamol into the mouse, and uh, I mean, very light in in terms of I mean, it's light enough that uh, we can extract the cells out from the tissues, but it's enough to actually stop the machineries from going. So in other words, we actually are able to kind of take a snap freeze of what's happening in the cells. Mm -hmm. So so now with that said, I mean, I think this actually changed the way how we we view about our cell technique and uh, generally speaking. Uh, full cytometry, I, I mean, which is a, a bread and butter technique for stem cell biology. So, so I mean, if we, I mean, now go back to to the the actual story, right? So, through the use of this particular technique, we were able to. Uh, I originally the thinking was, oh, let's take a look at the the transcriptome of these true quiescent stem cells uh, or quiescent muscle stem cells. So, so when we were analyzing some of these uh, RNA-seq data, what we found that was, I mean, there's uh, basically a, a prevalent uh, 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 accumulation of some intron reads uh, uh, in many of the, the, the transcripts. So, so now, uh, the interesting thing is, if we were to look at some of the early activated time points or even the fully activated time points, you don't see any of these uh, intro retention anymore. So, so then we we kind of oh, I mean maybe this is a, a good interesting mechanism there to to explore further, and and this is where we we started from the uh, uh, I mean basically from the phenomenon uh, that we observed uh, in the RNA seq. So, so from that point on, I mean, uh, we also uh, stumbled into one of the the, the splicing regulator. Uh, so this particular protein called DAC. Uh, so DEK. So DAC is previously been shown to to help with facilitating intron removal, uh, particularly the phosphorylated version of it. So, so and the way how it works is it helps to it helps the UTF thirty five to 
um, uh, I basically bind to it and and help to uh, cite the the, the three prime uh, splice. Right? So so and with that, I mean the complex will help to 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 splice to splice out uh, the, the the intron. So so in our story, or I mean in uh, this particular paper, we show that DAC is absent in the quiescent uh, muscle stem cells. But then, uh, as soon as the the cells are activated, DAC is activated very quickly. Thereby, I mean, helping with the splicing. Hmm. So, so and going back to Arun's uh, question regarding to how uh, how conserved and and how uh, how universal this particular mechanism is, we actually spend a bit of time uh, looking through the geo database and uh, basically downloaded a lot of stem cell data and and particularly those ones that has the quiescent stem cells are isolated mm. and uh, from this 200 or so data sets what we found is that particularly quiescent uh, stem cells uh, quiescent adult stem cells uh, has uh, they all uh, quite many of them all have uh, intro retentions mm. so so and this is uh, conserved I uh, we have observed that uh, of in in mice in human uh, I mean different species right so and we also uh, see that across different adults themselves so mm. so basically uh, the idea there is I mean the whole thing seems to be uh, uh, a universal uh, mechanism in how uh, quiescent stem cells are uh, used uh, to poise the stem cell for rapid uh, activation mm. right. And that's the key, right? This is uh, has broad implications in all these different cell types because it's like a, a, a characteristic of the regenerative mechanism. You need to be able to respond to that acute insult um, and other mechanism, not just regeneration, just response. Uh, so being that's poised to have a quick response. And um, looking specifically at deck. It seemed, from mine, and forgive me because I, you know, I couldn't look to, as deeply as I would have liked. But it seemed, from what I read, that overexpression caused quiescence exit, um, so you would get impaired regeneration. Makes sense. But then knockdown. I saw you had some like shRNA knockdown, um, but I didn't get a clear view. Maybe it was in the supplement about whether or not there was a phenotype there. Is there like an amplification? of stem cell activity so, if you knock down deck because it's not there to begin with, right? Um, and I guess the question behind the question there is, can you leverage this knowledge uh, therapeutically? Basically, the yeah, but we have done some sRNA uh, deck uh, and and the, the muscle stem cells appears to look quiescent. So, so basically, they are not able to, to get into cell cycle. And I mean, like, we actually have a conditional knockout that are that are uh, soon to be available uh, so so but we do not have the in vivo hmm. uh, uh, data for that particular aspect and it's, it's also not in, in the paper of course so uh, I mean in terms of therapeutic uh, uh, aspect so so actually a while ago I when I was still in Tom Randall's lab as a postdoc we published a paper uh, uh, concerning a particular microRNA called the microRNA 489, and this particular microRNA actually targets that three mm. prime UTR, and and we know that microRNA 489 is 
highly expressed in the quiescence themselves. Mm. So, so, and I mean, to go back to your therapeutic question, uh, one of the ways that we can manipulate the levels of DAC is actually uh, uh, by using these so-called the antagonists. Right, so, so we can actually tune the the microRNA four eighty nine level uh, by using a, a basically a, a, a telvin injected antagonist mm. system with Y. So, so and from that particular experiment, what we can see is, uh, I mean, basically, muscle stem cell activation in otherwise an uninjured muscle, uh, suggesting that we're, I mean, some. I mean, this particular uh, regimen are uh, able to activate the stem cells. Right? So, but we have we have been following up with that, and, and uh, but we don't have a lot of data to to discuss at this point. <laughs> yeah, but muscle stem cell activation is something that really captures the imagination, right? So your your story was a really beautiful basic science story, but it has a lot of translational potential. So, in terms of muscle stem cell activation, you know one thought is you can use it potentially for healing in the case of an injury, or maybe in the other hand, maybe the adult muscle stem cells can be stimulated to enhance muscle generation, something that I could use more of these days. So there are a lot of exciting possibilities for translational applications of adult muscle stem cells, but is there one particular approach that really excites you the most in terms of their activation and utilizing them for these translational purposes? So in other words, if you had to activate or reactivate adult muscle stem cells to actually end their quiescence and stimulate their activity, what approach would you first use to address some of these translational and clinical concerns? Well, uh, that's a difficult question, Arun. <laughs> so, so uh, we ask the tough questions here. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have to think about this for a second here. Uh, so, so, but I, I would say, I mean, I, I will actually uh, would not directly answer your question. Okay, so so, but I would actually uh, I want to suggest the following. So so, what we have been working on are these so-called the the quiescence regulator, right? So so, I mean, basically, they are there to functions to to stop the cells from cycling. So. So of course, if we are able to tune these quiescence regulator, we should be able to, at which, you know, make the cells cycles or, or or stop them from cycling. So I think one of the the application that we have been thinking a little about is not so much in the in the muscle, but actually in cancer. So so I mean, if you think about uh, uh I mean. In a tumor, right? I mean, we understand that there are some of the the, the cells within the tumor could be the stem cell, right? The cancer stem cells. They are actually not really uh, uh, proliferating, right? So a traditional chemotherapy would not kill them, right? So so at the end of the day, you get a relapse for that uh, purpose, uh, for that for that reason. So, so the idea there is, I mean, instead of really to think about a fine tuning, can we actually put these non-proliferating cells to full activation, hmm. right? And and I mean, basically push them out of the cell cycle. Hmm. Then, I mean, can you actually use the uh, 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 chemotherapy to to kill them? 
Hmm. So, so that's the kind of thinking that we we have been uh, thinking a lot, and and I mean, instead of, you know, thinking about the the uh, the tuning, I were more thinking about, like, can we go all, like, uh, make the sales go all out, and 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 uh, and we target it that way. So, so I don't know if I answer your no, your question like kind of indirectly. <laughs> that's I mean, that's fine. a good answer. It's uh, flush them out so you can kill them. I, I get the. Uh, what I get there from from you and your work is that while you focus on the on the muscle stem cells, it's really just a, a foundation for more you know broadly applicable concepts in stem cells. You know, um, but even so, I'm going to bring you back to the muscle thing. I'm afraid, um, but you know, this is kind of on target. You're talking about cancer therapy, and that's something that there's not really any gray area. We all know what the end point there is. There's no ethical questions the cancer is bad and we're trying to kill it no one's fighting for the cancer but there's other questions you know like germline editing where it's clear there's some precarious ethical questions or like even more commercial ones like doping in sports where we all know that there's boundaries um but then there's the gray area right uh, before those ground boundaries uh where like what you might call enhancement could be like uh, cast as health preserving, you know, like in the muscle, it's really, it's hard to draw that line. You know, your, your fitness is about your long-term health and cardiovascular. You can make a lot of arguments there. So there's obviously a bit of a potential for abuse, but maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic about it. Maybe it's, it's not really such a big deal. Where, where do you stand on, on this? I mean, obviously you respect that it is a big deal, but maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of it than than it is where do you stand and, and is it even do you think a place for a basic scientists like ourselves to weigh in on how the tools that we generate are applied i think getting down to it i actually think that we need to do it and i mean basically understand the the the, the biology better and actually really try our best to to find a way that we can do these kind of enhancements. I, I mean, I, but not so much for, of course there will be, I mean, what you're referring to the ethical concerns is, I mean, for example, I don't know, in sports uh, and, and that kind of uh, scenarios, but I'm more thinking about people who suffers from sarcopenia, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I, you know, eventually when you get old, you're gonna get these kind of muscle weakness and, and I mean, you do need enhancements. Mm -hmm. So, so, so the question there becomes, I mean, if we, uh, I mean, think about, you know, uh, on a, on a, on a kind of a chronic issue rather than, uh, 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 uh issue to start with, I, I have no problem with that. Right. And, and I would like to, uh, understand that further. Yeah, I guess it's it's a bit of a dumb question. It's like the people who invented or deal with pain therapy, you know, they're aware that there's a potential for abuse, but they're not really on the hook for the, you know, opioid crisis right. in America. So, I mean, I kind of put you on the spot there. My apologies. I just want to see how you feel about it. You know, do you feel the weight of of mm -hmm. that this cuz with cancer therapy, it's everyone goes to work and they know they're doing good work, you know, with with other types right. of things, I wonder if maybe there's a little bit of a ethical question. But you got your eye on the ball, Tom, and I'm sure you don't have to worry about the little, you know, Schwarzeneggers out there in the future. They're trying to get big <laughs> on your therapies. 
No, I think that was a, that was a great answer. And I think what Dalon was in part alluding to in his curveball question there was the power of these new technologies, right? There's so many new exciting technologies that are emerging in stem cell biology and in science in general. So one such example of of a universal seems like technology is single cell, right? Single cell RNA-seq and single cell atlas papers have become really popular recently. We've covered them a lot on the podcast. Although perhaps we're reaching a point where the technology has become so commonplace and so accessible that the overall impact of some of these single cell papers has kind of dropped down a little bit. But your lab actually had a collaborative effort with uh, Fabian Legrand's lab, and you published a paper in Molecular Cell. Uh, that combined mass cytometry with single-cell RNA-seq. You actually showed that skeletal muscle is composed of uh, something like 10 different mononucleated cell types and myofibers, interstitial tenocytes, and smooth muscle mesenchymal cells. So in other words, a diversity of cells that you are actually able to reveal using this mass cytometry tech. So do you think this is a combination of technologies and mass cytometry and single cell that should be used more going forward? Right. I, I think, I mean, that is actually, I think the, the, the kind of, you know, combination uh, uh, approach will, will, will actually be the, 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 the future uh, of uh, how we look at these type of big data. And, and I think, I mean, these days, right, in addition to the, the, the mass cytometry, I mean, there are also different kinds of techniques, such as the, the site seed, right? I mean, like these kind of epitope uh, tagged uh, 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 way of, you know, looking at the single cell uh, RNA-seq. Uh, so, so you can actually look at the cell surface receptors uh, alongside with your single cell RNA-seq uh, data, right? So, so and, and I mean, Putting together with, uh, for example, some of the spatial uh, transcriptomics. I mean, I, these are, I, I think, just to name a few, uh, uh, some of the, the 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 things that are on the horizon. Uh, what 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 people are, are doing, and and I I do think um, these days technology indeed drives the the I mean some of the the interesting uh, discovery. Uh, so so I do uh, yeah I I I I think long story short is I I. I embrace uh, uh, new technologies, and 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 I do think that uh, new technologies will will help us understand the, uh, uh, the 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 biology better. But with that said, right, I mean, I I do want to comment once again on the single cell RNA seq approach. Uh, so so of course we have a explosion of single cell RNA seq data. In the in you know, different kinds of uh, field, right? So, but one thing that the single cell RNA technique, uh, uh, I mean, suffers from is uh, we're looking at live cells, and and I mean, basically, uh, it will have the very similar issues like our 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 uh, I mean, like when we do the freshly isolated uh, muscle stem cells, the transcriptome actually change. When you actually isolate the the distant uh, the the these type of uh, mononuclear cells from the tissues, so so I think I mean this is uh, I think uh, calling for a a good uh, uh, fixation technique uh, that will allow us to to look, look into these single cell data uh, in a in in a more in situ way. Yeah, now I see why you started uh, talking 
about the the method there when you were answering Arun's early question because that is critical and I've always wondered and I think it's been explained away right it's that you you dissociate the cells and then you put them on ice and there's not really enough time for like transcriptional turnover so you really get a snapshot of what they look like in vivo but your whole point there with the intron retention is that there is there's this rapid turnover in terms of like what the transcriptome actually looks like um, right. in response to these insults. So yeah, I think we, we really do need to improve our, our methods. And, you know, I, I think, as you said, though, at the, at the beginning of that answer, you have to embrace the new tech because it does give you greater resolution on the biology. And I think as Arun alluded to that, that paper that you guys had in molecular cell really illustrated how many cells there are in any tissue, you know, people like to reduce, well, people generally, I think in the past scientists and stem cell scientists have reduced organs and tissues down to like the one cell or the, the couple of cells that really are the, the major driver of the function of that organ. But it's really a lot more cells than that, right? And we're living in this age of organoids where everyone's trying to make the, the tissues that we can use therapeutically, um, but there's more cells than we knew maybe uh, involved in those organoids. And right. I know this may not be your focus, uh, but if I don't uh, talk about organoids at least once in the show, they'll, they'll break my legs in, in, the, in the office over there. So <laughs> I got to uh, I got to get to it. But um, what I what I'm talking about here is that the, your cells, your molecular cell story forced me to revise my view of skeletal muscle as like the simple, relatively simple biomechanical apparatus. And I know there are these reports of like neuromuscular uh, organoids from Mina Guti and skeletal muscle organoids from Fran Francesco Tedesco. But um, how close do you think uh, these uh, come to the bona fide? Now, knowing what you know from your molecular cell paper, are we close to making something that really approximates uh, skeletal muscle? So uh, I, I have to apologize to start with. I, I am, and of course, I, I do think organoid is a, uh, a, 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 the future. Uh, I mean, if we can make many muscles, I, that would be fantastic. I, but I'm definitely no expert in, in this area. And I think, uh, yeah, just like what you said, right, Francesco uh, or, or Penny Gilbert uh, uh, from uh, University of Toronto, mm. right? they, they definitely know a lot better than, than I do. But I do think, I mean, we're getting much closer, I have to say. Uh, the, the reason for that is because I think a lot of organoids are now are, are basically mixing cell types uh, together and, and you need to know the, the, the right cocktails. Uh, so, so, and I do think by uh, having a, a, a kind of a muscle atlas, uh, we understand the, the, the number of uh, cell populations that are in the muscle. And, and I think uh, it's only a matter of time that, uh, I mean, some of the organoid uh, biologists will, will figure it out. Hmm. So, so I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised that, I mean, I will see a paper in, in, in a very short time. So many cool technologies to talk about, but enough about these technologies. Let's talk about you, okay? Let's talk about okay. you, Dr. Chung. So after you finished up your postdoc in Tom yes. Rando's lab at Stanford, you actually moved to the Division of Life Science at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which is where you're at right now. So HKUST is a really young university. It was founded in right. 1991. 
but it's That's one right. of the world's fastest growing universities and it's actually one of Asia's top research institutions. So talk about like a meteoric rise for a school that's actually younger than I am. That's hard to imagine. So for those of us who are not familiar with HKUST, tell us more about it, the strength of its stem cell research and why you chose to become a professor there. Right. Uh, I think, I mean, HKUST is a, a place that is uh, of I would say uh, they're comprised of a, a, a lot of high energy uh, folks here. So, so, and the interesting structure of this university is that we're actually uh, a single gigantic building, and the the building within this building we have people from you know, of course, the school of science, you know, people, physicists, uh, mathematician, you know, life scientists. Uh, but we also have a lot of engineering uh, folks here uh, on, on on basically just just one floor be below us. So so the structure is built in a way that actually uh, uh, aim to foster uh, multidisciplinary uh, research. So so I think this is one uh, one of the the idea that I mean uh, in about thirty years ago that that is rather innovative and and it. Does work uh, for for this place. Uh, so so you see a lot of interesting um, research that are done uh, jointly with uh, you know engineering department and and the science uh, departments. So 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 I would say uh, I mean the the good thing about a young university is that the the administration is very willing to to try out new things. Uh, so they are they are very. I mean, they don't have a, a rigid uh, 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 architecture here uh, or, or structure uh, here. To uh, I mean, that you have to go through. Right? So if you have a great idea, you you talk to. I mean, you can talk to the dean, right? And and the dean will support you. So so you can try out a lot of new ideas, a lot of new initiative that way. So 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 I think this is why. I, I, I'm always a, a person who, who is very uh, adventurous, and, and I found this place to be a, a great place for me. It's hard to talk about uh, Hong Kong, though, without discussing this newly imposed security law that implements sweeping measures to suppress political agitation in a field like stem cell biology that has been at least historically a bit fraught with the political implications of the work. Do you fear that this new law or laws may have uh, impact, negative or positive, on, on stem cell research? Well, that's, a, that's an unexpected question, Dylan. <laughs> so so <laughs> I would say that uh, actually, interestingly, right, uh, indeed, we do have a, a bit of uh, thoughts about, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, political uh, Movements, you know, uh, I mean, different kinds of laws are, are starting to to emerge uh, in in the recent year or so. So, so, but uh, in terms of talking about uh, science or, or funding resources uh, towards uh, not just stem cell biologies, but just generally speaking, uh, innovations, science and innovation. Uh, th there's never a better time, actually. I mean, in Hong Kong right now, um, I mean. The government actually uh, is pouring uh, uh, quite a bit of resources uh, into innovation. So, so uh, this partly has to do with 
we are now, uh, I think the, the Hong Kong government is trying to transform our economy uh, from, you know, solely relying on finance to uh, a bit more, you know, uh, basically diversify the, 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 the economy a little mm-hmm. bit more. So, so I think with that said, I, I do think right now, uh, indeed, there are a bit of a, a political uh, issues here. But in terms of, you know, supporting science, I think either the Chinese government uh, or the, the Hong Kong government, uh, they are actually in, in, in full support. And, and I think uh, to some degree, they're they are very eager to, uh, to make this uh, uh, a place for for uh, for research uh, in the in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. Well, there's political issues everywhere around the world. It seems like these days. So you know, at least mm-hmm. well, it sounds good that uh, the stem cell biology is definitely being supported there in Hong Kong. So that's refreshing to hear. And so thank you again for joining us here on the show, Dr. Chung. And before we let you go, we're gonna ask you a couple of final questions um, to get our. Sure to let our listeners know a little bit more about you as a person, as a scientist. So starting things off, what was your greatest science blunder or something that happened in your scientific career that kind of, you know, forced you to reevaluate yourself as a scientist and perhaps built you up as a scientist as well? Right. Well, I I guess maybe I will talk about uh, one of the one of the projects that I started out my lab with, which is, of course, a failure. Right. So. uh, So. (laughs) So, I mean, I was um, I mean, I started my lab at UST, so I was getting all excited and wanting to. I mean, of course, I'm interested in stem cell quiescence. I would like to track these stem cells uh, and see how many times the 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 uh, the squashing stem cells device throughout the life of an animal. So so I I created a whole bunch of these kind of cell cycle trackers uh, that are supposed to to track the stem cells for a few cycle on a lineage specific way. So everything works well. So I spent a lot of resources on it, and uh, I mean everything go, went well uh, in vitro. Okay, so I, I tested it on the cell line. <laughs> everything works out. And so I went ahead and, and you know, pulled the trigger. I, Let's go make the mouse. Of course, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I see absolutely oh. no signal oh. uh, after I, I, I got all these mice and after I bred them all. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, like uh, three years of work went down uh, oh. uh, in the drain. Uh, so, so I would say, I mean, like taking this uh, uh, experience, right? Lesson learned. Uh, when things works in vitro, it does not always work in vivo. So, so, uh, so, and, and these days we, uh, we go the other way around. We, uh, always try to, to, to look into, uh, the, the, the pathways and, and regulations in vivo, uh, before we, we dig down to, into the mechanism. <laughs> Did you figure you out know? ever why it didn't work? Well, I think there's a combination of, uh, recombination efficiencies and also the, the, uh, the, the, the overestimation of how strong the promoter is and I mean mm-hmm. and also how weak the, the process proteins are <laughs> so so I, well I think if anything can go wrong it all went wrong <laughs> so. I think that's most most of my negative results begin with that last thing you said which was overestimating my judgment 
That's exactly right. <laughs> well, you know what? That's why I avoid the in vivo system altogether. Purely in vitro. That's me. That's going to bite me in the butt <laughs> down the road, but you know, I'm sticking to it. So our last question here is who are your scientific heroes? And who, you know, these heroes can have influenced you over the course of your career. Who do you look up to in science? Right. So, so I mean, this is, uh, if I have to name a person, it will be one of the guys that I met uh, during my PhD time uh, in Boulder, uh, Colorado. Uh, so his name is Rob Knight. Uh, so, so he's actually now a professor at UCSD and also the co-founder of the American, American Gut Project. So, so uh, Rob is actually, uh, his lab research is very interesting. It, it involves in the development of computational techniques to categorize the, the, microbi uh, the microbiome of human animals and, and, and the environment, right? So, so he's actually a, a computational biologist. So when I was a PhD student, uh, Rob was a postdoc uh, in Boulder and uh, subsequently became a professor uh, there at Boulder. So, so he was a, I mean, he is a role model uh, uh, for me. Uh, actually, it led me into a lot of thinking regarding uh, the use of computational techniques uh, and also uh, the importance of biostatistics, right? Which also, I mean, basically, uh, these are the the kind of bread and butter uh, in my lab now. Uh, so, so I would say much of what I do actually stems from the, the kind of systemic view that I learned from Rob. Uh, so, so uh, this is why we're very into you know all kinds of NGS uh, techniques, you know, generating uh, big data and and be be able to you know apply some of the computational approach to to analyze it. And and yeah, I for example like the recent papers that we. Uh, stumble on the, the phenomenon of intron retention. Wow. I wonder if Rob knows that he's your hero. That would be, I might give him an email and be like, hey, did you know that Tom Chung, this amazing scientist, thinks you're awesome? That would probably make you know, his day. Light years away from Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it would still make his day. I would love to get an email even from, you know, the most piddling scientist said, hey, you're my hero. We'll see. One day, maybe in a few decades. Tom, this has been a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We hope to have you back on soon when you've cracked some other computational code and figured out some of the mysteries of biology. Keep on going, my man. Thank you, Dalen and Arun. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. There you can get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers that we talked about. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Arun will personally reply in a DM. I can promise you that. Or you can hit us via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back with another one in a couple weeks. Thank you.